0: Listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell-Shaw, teacher, photographer, and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle.
1: Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: Today is May 8th, 2022, and this is episode 172 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear an interview with Shannon King, curator for the Fort Rod Hill and Fizgard Lighthouse National Historic Site in British Columbia, Canada. So Michelle, we're recording this on May 2nd, and yesterday we both attended the American Lighthouse Foundation's gala dinner, which was a... Pretty cool. We hadn't hadn't had it in a in a couple of years, so that was nice. How did you like it, Michelle?
1: I love the event. I had a great time, and it was really great to see all of the lighthouse enthusiasts that we haven't had an opportunity to see for the last couple of years. And I would also like to congratulate you, Jeremy, <laughs> on receiving the 2021 Led Hadley Award for your all of your volunteerism that you do for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, I don't know what we would do as an organization without you.
0: Thank you so much, Michelle. I, I really appreciate that. You know, um, I think uh, I think you'd agree. I mean, you won the award of, of what was it about three three years ago, four two years, years ago? ago. Three le- years ago, the last time, yep. The last time we had the, the live yep. event, yeah. So uh, I think you'd agree with me that we, we do this stuff, this volunteering for lighthouses, because we love them, absolutely, and we want to preserve them, and we want to, uh, you know, let people know about them and, and everything. We don't do it to win awards, but it, you know, it's always nice to be recognized. For
1: absolutely, the,
0: the hard work you do. So, yep. yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And as I, I said in the event, uh, it was nice to see people in person. People sitting there looking, looking at me instead of uh, little faces on a computer screen, you right. know, little zoom boxes. So, so yeah, it was, it yeah, was really nice. Yeah, that was nice. definitely nice. Yeah. And I just want to clear something up to make something clear for listeners, because I think there's there's often confusion. People tend to get the U.S. Lighthouse Society and the American Lighthouse Foundation confused. Of course, we do this podcast for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, but I'm also president of the board of directors of the American Lighthouse Foundation, and I've been involved with uh, ALF since the 90s. Uh, And I also, of course, I'm very involved with our chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. So I just want to make it clear, the U.S. Lighthouse Society and the American Lighthouse Foundation are two different organizations, but they both do a tremendous amount for lighthouse preservation and uh, education. Definitely. Yeah. And of course, you're the chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, Michelle, and we have uh, some things coming up, including an event on uh, June 4th, which is uh, creeping up on us. It's going to be at the Lions Club in Kittery, Maine.
1: That's right. We are having the June Jamboree. We'll have some fun entertainment and food at the event and a silent auction and raffle. It's one of the ways we're raising the money to rebuild the wooden walkway at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse.
0: Yeah, the uh, 80-foot walkway that reaches out to the lighthouse, uh, which is, of course, in Newcastle, New Hampshire, was last rebuilt in 2006. It's taken a beating in storms. It's going to cost more than $30,000 to rebuild. People can find out more about the June Jamboree on June 4th by going to PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org.
1: If anyone has a lighthouse-related item or gift certificates they'd like to donate to the event, they should contact us at info at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. We're also starting up our tours by appointment at Portsmouth Harbor Light at the end of this month, and we have two lighthouse sunset cruises coming up on June 17th and 24th
0: seems like it's been uh, the off season for a long time, and suddenly this the season's uh, it's here, right? A, almost upon here. us. It yeah. is here. It is here. Yeah. So things are heating up. We're getting into the busy lighthouse season in New England, uh, and uh, let me ask you, Michelle: Has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history?
1: Why, yes, it has, Jeremy. The Port Washington Lighthouse in Wisconsin was first lighted on May eighth, eighteen forty nine. Because the Port Washington area was home to many immigrants from Luxembourg. In 2000, the country of Luxembourg paid for a new tower to be installed as part of a restoration. The lighthouse stands as a memorial to members of the United States military who fought in Luxembourg in World War II. And the restored lighthouse contains a museum of the light station's history.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. So let's tell our listeners about today's guest, Shannon King.
1: Sure, Jeremy. The island, known as Fisgard, is a stone's throw offshore at the west side of the entrance to Esquimalt Harbour. The island was named for a British naval frigate, with the name's origin reaching back to Fishguard, a coastal town in Wales. The British Royal Navy began using Esquimalt Harbour as a base for its operations in Pacific Canada in 1848.
0: The lighthouse at Fisgard went into service on November 16, 1860. The 48-foot round brick tower was surmounted by an iron lantern holding a fourth order Fresnel lens that rotated on a mercury bed. The ornate iron spiral stairway inside the tower was crafted in San Francisco.
1: The first keeper was George Davies, a native of Wales. George Davies left Fisgard and became keeper at Race Rocks in February 1861.
0: The light was automated in early 1929 with the installation of a acetylene-powered lamp and sun valve. Fisgard ceased being an island in 1951 with the creation of a causeway from Fort Rod Hill. The lighthouse was designated a National Historic Site of Canada several years later.
1: Parks Canada completed much renovation of the station in the 1970s and 1980s, including the reconstruction of a boathouse and a storehouse, and the keeper's dwelling was converted into a museum. With the adjacent fort, the site is now operated as the Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse
0: National Historic Site. Shannon King is the curator for the Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse National Historic Site. I had the pleasure of speaking with her recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking today with Shannon King, who is the curator for the Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse National Historic Site in British Columbia, Canada. I have such great memories of visiting uh, there in 2015. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shannon. Well,
2: thank you very much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. So, before we get into the questions, actually, I'd like to acknowledge that Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse National Historic Sites are located on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people. They are the first nations of the area, known today as the Esquimalt and Songhees Nations, and their historical relationships with the land extend back a lot farther than the history we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, thousands of years, and I'm just really grateful to live and learn on this territory.
0: I'm really glad you started by making that point. I think that is so important uh, that we uh, include that in anything we discuss uh, about the area. So I, I really appreciate you, talking, you uh, mentioning that. Thank you. Before we get more into the uh, the history of the site there, the uh, the lighthouse, and we'll talk a little bit about the fort too, how did you come to be the curator at Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse?
2: Well, actually, I've only been here a few months, so I'm still learning a lot and enjoying uh that process of getting into the stories. But uh, I've been working in museums for about 18 years, both in educational and curatorial roles. And uh, I come to this position with a master's degree in archeology span from Simon Fraser University in 2007. And um, yeah, it's just a wonderful opportunity to get into the museum scene in Victoria.
0: Yeah, and what exactly does your job as curator entail?
2: Well, I work for Parks Canada and Parks Canada has a mandate to preserve nationally significant places and to present the stories of these places so that visitors can experience and understand Canada's history and natural spaces. And so my job supports this by caring for a collection of artifacts that are stored on site. And uh, my job is to make sure that they're preserved for future generations, but also to provide access to that collection for people today who uh, may want to do some research so research requests, and also by creating temporary exhibits that uh, share stories that aren't permanently on display when you come to the sites.
0: Now, uh, I want to ask you about the the harbor there. And I, before we started the interview here, I had to ask you about the pronunciation. So I hope I get it right here. But Fisgard Lighthouse is at the entrance to Esquimalt Harbor. Uh, and what makes that harbor historically significant?
2: Yeah, you got it right. The harbor is just geographically naturally a well-protected harbor and uh, has been important to the Squamal and Songhees people for at least 4,000 years uh, before Europeans arrived. And so historically it's significant in that way. Um, it continues to be important to both nations and all of their relations today but uh, probably you're referring a little bit more recent history. 1848 is when uh, the colonial naval history of Esquimalt Harbour begins. And the harbour was used uh, by the Imperial Navy and visited by warships of the British Pacific Squadron in their efforts to protect uh, British interests in this area. So the harbour has been used continuously since then as a naval base, uh, first by the British and then after 1906, it's been used by the Canadian Navy.
0: I think you partially explained this already in what you just said, but what was the impetus for building uh Fisgard lighthouse as the first permanent lighthouse on the west coast of Canada?
2: Yeah, you're right. There's a few, a few reasons. Uh, obviously, the British Imperial Navy occupying the, the harbour was an important one. Um, the light was there to guide ships into the harbour after dark. But there was also some other things happening locally. And one of them was that gold was discovered in the Fraser River in 1858. And about 30,000 gold miners flooded into Victoria within a couple of months during the spring of 1858 uh, to get their permits before heading to the mainland to find their gold. And so this increased naval traffic, obviously, um, hugely, and uh, not just bringing the miners uh, to Victoria, but also all the other trade and commerce uh, that met the demands of this rapid growth. And so that was one of the reasons why some lights were important on this side of the Juan de Fuca Strait. But there's another reason that it was really important, and that is because a lot of those gold seekers were American. And uh, Vancouver Island was a British colony at the time. And so the British were pretty motivated to establish their presence on this side of the Juan de Fuca Strait.
0: So uh, it's a beautiful lighthouse, very uh, elegant, I would say, uh, stately and uh, the beautiful Keeper's House, too. Do we know anything about the architect who designed the lighthouse? Can you tell me about that?
2: Yeah, the design of the lighthouse was likely influenced by a few different people. One of them was Joseph Pemberton, uh, who was the um, colonial surveyor and engineer of Vancouver Island at the time. He was asked by Governor Douglas to prepare some drawings and specifications for the lighthouse. So whether he did that himself or whether he got Otto Tiedemann to do it, I'm not sure, but Tiedemann worked uh, with Pemberton at the surveyor's office. So he was part of the team to ensure the building was constructed to plan. So probably it was an influence of both of those folks. But we also know that John Wright was involved and he was the first professional architect in Victoria and he won the contract to build the lighthouse. So I don't know how much he influenced the plans, but we do know for sure that one of the features of Fisgard Lighthouse is directly attributed to John Wright, and that's the staircase, uh, which is a circular cast iron, really beautiful, actually, a beautiful staircase mm-hmm. that's perfectly fitted to the tower, and it was cast in San Francisco.
0: Ah, yeah. Oh, it is. I remember that beautiful stairway, uh, but uh, certainly it's, uh, I would say it's the whole uh, site there, the lighthouse. and Keeper's House and the beautiful location. It's one of the icons of uh, the British Columbia coast. I think you'd agree with that.
2: I would agree with that.
0: The first keeper at Fisgard uh, was George Davies, who traveled from Wales to become the first lighthouse keeper on Canada's west coast, British Columbia. Was there any reaction of local people uh, to the government's choice of a keeper at that time?
2: I don't really know how the locals felt about it, actually. But uh, what I do know is that Governor Douglas requested competent men to accompany the light equipment from England because, of course, there weren't any experienced light keepers in the colony at the time. And so the Board of Trade chose men who could oversee the installation of the equipment and also stay on as light keepers. And so they actually chose somebody who uh, had been employed by the company that produced the brass frames and uh, set the glass lenses into them and also produced the lanterns for the two lighthouses, both Fisgard Lighthouse and uh, Race Rocks Lighthouse that were being built at the same time. So uh, George Davies had been employed by Wilkinson Company and that's why he was hired to supervise the installation of the lights. He and his family has, uh, had three kids at the time but actually only two of them came with him. One was too ill to travel um, but he and his wife and two kids came and were the first keepers of the light at Fisgard.
0: So I understand. Uh, first of all, I think that first uh, lens was a fourth order for Lens, which is a fairly common size. I'm sure it was incredibly beautiful. Uh, I understand there were some problems getting that lens shipped from England to Canada before the light could go into service. Uh, can you tell me anything about that?
2: Well, um, from what I've learned, I think the ruby shades were the real trouble, but both the, I think, the, the lantern and the, the shades uh, were damaged in the journey uh, to Fisgard. Uh, when the vessel stopped in Honolulu, I think what they discovered is that the ruby shades in one of the cases were all broken and that the ironwork of the lantern was also quite rusted already from exposure on the journey. So, uh, for sure, the shades would have been replaced at that time, but in 1865, we also know that the shades were ordered again, and when those shades arrived uh, in February, it turned out that they were all broken, and so new ones were shipped in August, and at that time, in 1865, they made them into two, uh, from two pieces of thicker glass to better withstand transit, so um, it sounds like the ruby shades were, were the trouble
0: when you say ruby shades is probably a system that rotated around the lens to create a flash. Do you know, do you know anything about that? Or
2: uh, my understanding and I it's limited, but my understanding is that the shades would be so that the, the light would shine different colors in different angles. So there was actually a portion of it that shone green, a portion that shone white and a portion that was red. Okay, and so that would help with the navigation to know which angle you were coming at the light from.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You so, it just, Like
2: when you're navigating yeah. on the water, you need to be able to see. So rather than it all being white, it would be clearer where to, to navigate yeah. based on what
0: yeah. color you could see. That makes a lot of sense And this, in the U S we sometimes refer to uh, light as a sector light where there might be a red sector. We would call it that marks a dangerous area. So, uh, I think Mar-
2: that's exactly. Yeah. It.
0: So Mariners coming in the channel, if they veer out of the channel and see that red sector, they know they got to get back in the, the channel. So there was a a keeper by the name of Joseph Dare in the late 1800s, who, uh, from what I read about him, he had uh, quite a bit of bad luck in his career as a lighthouse keeper. Can you tell me about him?
2: Sure. Uh, Joseph Dare was the lightkeeper from 1884 to 1898. And um, he injured himself actually in 1890 when he shot at a mink that was on the rocks at Fisgard, uh, on Fisgard Island, and uh, his gun exploded.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it was, it was actually quite a serious injury. And he spent about three and a half months in the naval hospital at uh, Esquimalt. And at that time, um, it was the responsibility of the light keeper to find their own replacement. And uh, there was no uh, additional budget to pay the substitute. So uh, the substitute was paid out of the keeper's own salary. And uh, so Dare didn't have a salary while he was in the hospital and uh, apparently had some problems paying his hospital bill.
0: But uh, I understand he had even worse luck a little bit later on is that right
2: indeed he passed away on july 3rd 1898 apparently he was returning to the lighthouse from esquimalt after dark and uh, lost an oar and drowned trying to retrieve it so yeah his luck did not improve
0: wow that's a pretty sad uh lightkeeping career there are there any other particular stories about lighthouse keepers and families who lived at Fisgard that stand out for you
2: for sure um i really like the stories or what i've learned about the bevis family so william bevis was lightkeeper for 18 years uh, starting in 1861 to 1879 and uh, we actually have quite a lot of correspondence from him not so much about his family life but mostly advocating for repairs to improve the living conditions at fiscard so when fiscard lighthouse was first constructed there was an article in the local paper called The Colonist, which mentioned that the work and material are both of substantial character, particularly the tower, which will endure for a century without any serious injury. But it turns out uh, that the hard brick that they thought they were building the tower with was actually not as hard, a bit of an inferior quality brick. And uh, within a short period of time, the exterior of the buildings began to deteriorate and require significant repairs. So William Bevis wrote several letters about these conditions, uh, starting as early as April 1861, just six months after the lighthouse was first lit. So the fittings around the windows and doors were loose, um, the lighthouse was drafty, rain would come in through the windows and doors during the storms. And so he found that the interior was damp and uncomfortable and He wasn't taken very seriously at the time. There's actually a letter back that suggests he'd do more work as a lightkeeper and less letter writing. But in fact, uh, records show that quite a bit of repair work was needed between 1861 and and 1873.
0: Reminds me of the troubles we had with a lot of our earlier lighthouses in the the US that weren't built so well until a little bit later in the 1800s, they started building them better.
2: the other interesting thing about the Bevis family is that when William Bevis passed away, Uh, His wife, Amelia, and her 19-year-old niece became the keepers of the light for six months Mm. from August 1879 to February 1880 while they were awaiting a replacement keeper. So they weren't technically uh, light keepers. They were still assistants, but it was the first time that an all-female team operated the light as the, the main light keepers. It was just that they weren't considered light keepers because women weren't, Permitted to hold that post at the time, but they certainly did the job.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Were there other women keepers in the history of Fisgard? Do you know?
2: The very first family, George Davies, we talked about him a little bit, and he transferred to Race Rocks in 1861. Mm-hmm. And his wife didn't follow for a couple of months. So she was at uh, Fisgard as an assistant keeper with a couple of other gentlemen um for two months before she also transferred to race rocks Mm -hmm. so technically she was also operated the light i don't think there were other women keepers because the last keeper was in 1928 right i'm pretty sure the rest of the keepers were men
0: yeah so uh the last keeper and family uh left there in uh 1928 as you as you said can we talk a bit about the um, the historic site? The Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard uh, Lighthouse National Historic Site uh, was established. Can you tell me one, how that came about and uh, two, what does the historic site encompass?
2: Yeah, the lighthouse was designated a National Historic Site in 1958 and uh, shortly afterwards uh, Parks Canada assumed responsibility for site operations. So there's actually two National Historic Sites side by side that are separate. They have different heritage values and stories but uh, they are both operated by Parks Canada and that's Mm -hmm. Fort Rod Hill uh, as well as Fisgard Lighthouse. The Fisgard Lighthouse is considered significant for some of the reasons we've already talked about that it's the earliest lighthouse built on Canada's West Coast, that it guided vessels into Esquimalt Harbor which was the base for the Royal Navy at the time when it was built. And also that it was a visual marker of British sovereignty in the area. But it also influenced the establishment of the Victoria Squimal Coastal Defenses. And that's really where the other site uh, comes in. So today, uh, you can walk out onto uh, Fisgard Island with a causeway that was built in the 1950s. And so you can actually go out and explore Fisgard Island, walk around the lighthouse and uh, go into the lighthouse. And I really enjoy uh, that part of the experience of walking out on that uh, that causeway because that causeway wasn't there when there was a lightkeeper, and um, now it's really easy to access the site. But you can really imagine without that causeway what it would have been like for the lightkeepers to live on the island, even though the land is really close physically. It, it would have been a, a, quite a barrier at the time for the lightkeepers. And so their their world was pretty small on Fisgard Island. It's a it's a fairly small rocky island. There's not a lot of vegetation, so it really gives you that sense of isolation when you come to visit this site.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, in terms of the experience when you when you go, uh, being on the island is is one part of that. But the other part is going inside the buildings. And uh, in 2010, Parks Canada installed a variety of exhibits inside the. Uh, lighthouse. And so when you first enter the building, you get a sense of what it might have been like to be a lightkeeper back in the 1800s, because the first room is decorated as it might have been when Amelia Bevis was busy cooking on the stove to feed uh, her family. Uh, so it's sort of set up like a simple kitchen. But the other rooms uh, share a lot of a lot more stories about lighthouse technology and naval wayfinding and how that's changed over time. Um, And you also can go in and see that original uh, cast iron staircase we talked about that came from San Francisco. So I think it's pretty neat to be able to go inside the lighthouse and really explore and think about what it might've been like to live there.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I was very impressed by the way it was presented when I was there in 2015. It's really, really nicely done. It's a great place to visit. And talking about how it's on that island that's a little bit offshore with the causeway to it now, uh, a good analogy or a good comparison for, for our listeners might be the famous Nubble Lighthouse in New York, Maine and Southern Maine. That's one of the most photographed lighthouses in the world. That's just a couple of hundred feet offshore on an island. Uh, And they talked about building a bridge out to it over the years, but they never did. So the public doesn't get to go on the island and uh, it wasn't always that easy uh, to go back and forth. The caretaker there now is a good friend of mine and he's had his boat accidents going back and forth because it's close, but it can be it can be tricky, as you well know. It can be quite treacherous. So, uh, again, you've also got the, the fort there, Fort Rod Hill. I don't know if you want to say anything more about what visitors experience when they visit there, including uh, the fort itself.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the lighthouse, but in order to visit the lighthouse, in order to actually physically get to the lighthouse, you walk through the other National Historic Site, which is Fort Rod Hill and um starting in the late 19th century there was a whole series of fortifications built around the shores of greater victoria which served as observation posts and emplacements for garrison artillery that were designed to combat naval threats uh to protect not only the community during wartime but also specifically the west coast home of the british navy and later on the canadian navy in Esquimalt harbor and so fort rod hill is one of those places. And um, most of the locations were decommissioned in the in the late 1950s. And Fort Rod Hill was chosen as the site to represent this uh, history of the victorious Guaymalt coastal defense system. And that's why Fort Rod Hill was designated a National Historic Site. So the fort itself consists of several uh, artillery emplacements, batteries, barracks, canteen, Uh, magazines. There's a lot of buildings uh, to explore. And uh, the fort shares uh, stories about artillery and technology from the 1890s through World War II. There was never any active uh, battle against any enemy at this site, but the fort was ready uh, for such an eventuality during World War I and World War II. But also throughout its history, it was an important location for training. And so There was a lot of uh, activity in that sense of of training and uh, drills using some of these large artillery. That's when you really understand the the impact of having a lighthouse so close to a fort. And that is that uh, the percussion from firing these large artillery damaged the the glass in the lantern Mm. on more than one occasion. And so um, custom metal shades were made that had to be installed before firing practice in order to protect the lantern. So they're although they're separate uh, there is definitely some connections.
0: Yeah, well we've had similar stories at some of the the sites in the the US that have both uh, forts and lighthouses next to each other, including my my local one here, Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse being right next to Fort Constitution. I know there was extremely similar uh, friction there between the, the two uh, two parts of it. But anyway, let me ask oh. you what is the uh, the open season for the lighthouse?
2: Yeah, for sure. The grounds are open daily. Uh, year-round from 10 to 4 and then uh, the site has a peak season when the buildings are open daily from May 1st to October 15th from 10 to 5 and the site offers daily programming uh, during that peak season uh, often by costumed interpreters and outside of the peak season the lighthouse and other buildings are open to visit on the weekends but um, but it's always a beautiful place to go for a walk Uh, it's a very park-like setting all year round.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember the the beautiful walk to the lighthouse when I was there. Uh, and uh, well, could you remind me, first of all, how long is that walk from the parking area?
2: Sure. It takes about 15 minutes to walk down to the lighthouse from the parking area. So it's a gentle slope. You have to go down to the shoreline. And um, the nice thing about it is that there's a lot of things to see along the way. Benches to sit at, but also several buildings to to go in and explore. And uh, many of those have exhibits inside from May to October. So lots of things to see and do and, and sort of a nice meander, not necessarily a fast walk from parking lot to to the uh, lighthouse.
0: Yeah, I remember I spent a good part of a, a day there and on a beautiful day and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it all. Uh, the walk goes through something called the Gary Oak Learning Meadow. What is that exactly?
2: Yeah, I think this is a great example of how Parks Canada is partnering with Indigenous communities to educate people about the different uses of the land over time. So it isn't just a a fort or or a lighthouse, but um, really looking at how this land was used before the built environment on it now. And it's also an example of how Parks Canada is working to preserve endangered ecosystems in Canada. So Gary Oak ecosystems are actually extremely rare in Canada. They only exist in a few places in southern British Columbia. At Fort Rod Hill, the Gary Oak Learning Meadow is one acre of space that used to be lawn, but has been cultivated now to bring back the species that live within a Gary Oak ecosystem to educate visitors about the diversity and importance of this ecosystem, but also to provide uh, a space for species at risk. And on a cultural level, uh, this area of the site shares information about the indigenous connections to this land. And um, Gary Oak Meadows were and are very important to local indigenous communities who cared for the ecosystems and relied on them for their biodiversity long before Europeans were in this part of the world. Parks Canada's Species at Risk program team has worked really closely with the Songhees and Esquimalt knowledge keepers in order to restore this ecosystem. And uh, there's a beautiful carved welcome gate at the the garden entrance, which marks this as an important indigenous place. And uh, the interpretive signage helps visitors learn about the different seasons in the meadow and also how indigenous people use and cultivate the plants that grow here in particular, the camas bulb is, is one that we think of a lot when we think of a Gary Oak Learning Meadow because it's a beautiful blue bloom that we see in the springtime. But the camas bulb is just one of the species that was, that was and continues to be really culturally significant to the Kwongan-speaking people.
0: Just to clarify for listeners who might not know, we're, we're talking about the Gary Oak Learning Meadow you just explained. Uh, that's G-A-R-R-Y. O-A-K, Gary Oak. And I uh, I looked it up and I understand that the Gary Oak species is the, the only native oak species in Western Canada. So I learned something. Uh, yeah, they're funny.
2: hard to miss when you come to Victoria. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. tree that it's quite gnarly and uh, it has a very specific look to it.
0: Yeah, I love oak trees in general. And I remember the beautiful trees when I was visiting there. Another thing I remember is that I saw hummingbirds on the walk.
2: For sure, yeah, you could definitely come across some hummingbirds. There's a lot of uh, species that make their home at uh, Fort Rod Hill, actually, and uh, Fisgard Lighthouse. Black-tailed deer is really common to see, and there's there's no missing the Canada geese. There are many, many Canada geese on site. We have
0: them here too, <laughs> yeah.
2: But you might see seals, eagles, shorebirds. Like every time I go for a walk on site, I see something new. So.
0: I remember i think it was three hummingbirds flying around not uh, kind of hovering around near me that was pretty cool uh and there's also, a red hat. <laughs> Was i wearing a red hat i don't think so i, I usually wear a baseball cap but not usually red i'm not kidding. sure what i was wearing but uh there's also a nature trail uh on the, the site
2: yeah the historic nature trail also references the use of the land before the lighthouse or the fort were built so it's part of a larger system of trails used by the local indigenous people historically. And now the trail is a beautiful walk through a forested area of the site. Uh, It leads visitors out to two of the searchlights that were part of the coastal defense system. And along the trail, there's some really great signage, interactive signage that shares information about the local plants and animals that make their homes at Fort Rod Hill.
0: So let's uh, talk about the lighthouse just a little bit more. First of all, are there any uh, preservation projects that have been carried out? At the lighthouse in recent years,
2: for sure, preservation of the lighthouse has been really an ongoing project almost since it was built, as we learned from Bevis's correspondence we talked about earlier. But uh, when the lighthouse became fully automated in early 1929, it no longer had a lightkeeper living there, and so it became a bit of a popular spot for vandalism, and so it's needed some work in that regard Uh, it also had a fire in 1957 which damaged most of the interior finishings and so since 1960 when parks canada became involved in the site uh, the exterior the lighthouse has been restored to what it looked like around 1873 really the interior after 2010 with the the installation of the exhibits that was a fairly major recent more recent project uh, that provided The intent was to provide better access to visitors to the interior of the lighthouse and tell more stories about the site and its keepers. So that was a big uh, interior restoration project.
0: Yeah. Are there any further preservation projects, restoration projects in the pipeline?
2: Yes. (laughs) There's always the need to uh, protect the exterior of the building from the elements. So it's kind of a constant concern. And there are, plans in the works to do some more work on the exterior. In general, the roof, uh, the masonry, the paint, the bricks, all require regular upkeep in order to keep the building waterproof. So really not much has changed since uh, William Bevis's experience in, in the 1860s.
0: Yeah. Do you have any special events at the lighthouse and or at the fort?
2: Yeah, for sure. From May to October, Interpretive staff are on site, and they offer a, a range of activities every day for the public to participate in. It might be doing something like some of the chores the lightkeeper would have had to do in the 1800s, or learning about medical equipment that was used in World War One, wartime military training drills, or even offering ice cream in the canteen. So there's sort of a range of of uh, activities that people can participate in. The site also offers large public events. Uh, Historically, these have included Canada Day, a a really big Community Canada Day on July 1st, and also historical weapons demonstrations and reenactments and other large community events. So um, we're still finalizing the events for this summer, but uh, they will be posted on our website. So if anyone's planning a trip, best to check out the website to see if there are any events scheduled before you head this way. But one of the things that's actually really popular right now is the opportunity to camp overnight at the fort. And uh, we have five uh, canvas tents that are furnished and can sleep six people. So it's really perfect uh, opportunity for families or a group that want to have an extended visit and a particularly memorable visit to the site. Because it gives you the chance to explore the site after hours and really imagine what it might have been like to live full time at the lighthouse or to spend uh, summer in military training at the fort. Oh,
0: well, that sounds fantastic. What a great, great yeah. opportunity for for families. It's always so cool being in a lighthouse at night in terms of its nature too, just being in a beautiful place like that uh, overnight. That's I great. agree.
2: When, when yeah. it's quiet and you know, closed to visitors. So you really get a sense of, of being able to explore it at your own pace and find what interests you. I think it's a neat opportunity. Oh,
0: well, definitely. So would you say, I think I know what your answer will be for this, but would you say that Fisgard Lighthouse is an important historic monument for the Victoria area and for BC uh, on the whole?
2: Yeah, for sure. I hope that I've shared some reasons to that you'll believe me when I say I think Fort (laughs) Fisgard Lighthouse and Fort Rod Hill are both important sites, both locally and nationally.
0: Oh, definitely. There's no doubt about it. I have one final question for you, okay? And this one's for bonus points. So get your number two pencil ready and sharpened. Okay. Uh, What is your favorite thing about working at the Fort Rod Hill and Fisgard Lighthouse National Historic Site?
2: Oh my goodness, what I love the most is the range of stories. It's, there's an incredible depth of history here. It's such a surprise. I think people might be drawn to the site because of the lighthouse, and I think a lot of people are, but then they get here, and there's so much more here. It's not just the stories of Canada's recent past. The site celebrates human interactions with this land that stretches back thousands of years, and the natural beauty of the site as well is stunning. So it's really incredible to get to know just the depth of history in the site. My job is endlessly interesting because I get to explore all of those stories and share those stories with our visitors. It's really a special
0: place. Well, that's nicely summed up. And I completely agree about the the beauty of the place and the tremendous history. And uh, it's, it's really great speaking with you today, Shannon. N- nice meeting you via Zoom. I really appreciate you spending this time with me. And all this uh, talk about that that place and about British Columbia in general makes me want to go back. I, I loved Victoria, just the city of Victoria. It was a great city to visit. I had such a, a nice time there one of these years. Maybe I'll see you there in person.
2: Come say hi.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. So, again, thank you so much for spending this time with me today, Shannon. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much. It was great.
1: You can learn more about Fisgard Lighthouse and Fort Rod Hill on the Parks Canada website at pc.gc.ca. There's also an excellent book on Fisgard and other lighthouses in the area. It's called To the Lighthouse, an Explorer's Guide to the Lighthouses of Southwestern BC by Peter Johnson, John Walls, and photographer Richard Paddle.
0: Yeah, it's a great book. We had John Walls, the co-author on this podcast not too long ago. I visited Fisgard Lighthouse as I talked about with Shannon in the interview uh, back in 2015. I really loved it. Anyone going to British Columbia needs to go there and I also recommend spending time in the city of Victoria, which I think is one of the most beautiful cities I've seen.
1: Thanks as always to all the members, volunteers and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about tours, the Passport Program, preservation grants, and everything else the society has to offer.
0: If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts or any platform that lets you post reviews, please rate and review us.
1: The author Roy T. Bennett wrote in his book, The Light in the Heart, quote, Each day brings new opportunities, allowing you to constantly live with love, be there for others, bring a little light into someone's day, be grateful, and live each day to the fullest, end quote.
0: On next week's episode of Lighthearted, we'll be talking with Pam Setchel and Michelle Miroff of the Huntington Lighthouse Preservation Society in New York. As always, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light.